Listener Production. On the 1st of March 1999, Kathleen Folbig would make a call to triple zero that would change her life forever. Her 19-month-old daughter, Laura, was not breathing. It was the fourth time since 1989 that Kathleen would place a similar distressing call. A decade earlier, her son Caleb, a mere 19 days old, had died from sudden infant death syndrome, otherwise known as SIDS. Her second and third children, Patrick and Sarah, also died from SIDS at the tender ages of four months and ten months, respectively. Laura, however, was found to have passed from myocarditis, a cold-like viral infection that causes inflammation of the heart muscle. However, Laura's autopsy at the time stated the cause of death to be undetermined, sparking a two-decade-long battle with the justice system that we now know to be the most egregious miscarriage of justice in Australian history. The case involved four deaths. So you then got the proposition that you can't have four deaths in the one family. You can't have three deaths in one family, according to the dogma, which has become known as Meadows Law. The first death can be said to be sad, the second one suspicious, and the third one homicide unless proven otherwise. And the fourth, of course, is just too extraordinary to believe. The experts said they hadn't seen any examples of three or more deaths in a family. Whether they'd seen it or not, there were examples of it. Robert Kavanagh is Kathleen Folbig's barrister. The law he's talking about here, Meadows Law, was discredited in 2003, the same year Kathleen was sentenced to 40 years in prison for three cases of murder and one case of manslaughter. Kathleen's case was built on circumstantial evidence, and Meadows' law wasn't the only problematic reasoning that influenced the outcome. But it would be the first students at the University of Newcastle Legal Centre would start investigating, research that would support the 2015 petition to the governor, the first step of many that would eventually lead to Kathleen's pardon. Kate Willenger was one of those students. You've got a 10,000-piece puzzle and I had one little piece. I don't think that I ever saw myself working on something that was so important from a client's human life and social setting point of view. So the Legal Centre is effectively a law firm based in our School of Law and Justice at the University of Newcastle. So we're working with real people and their real legal problems. And we're focused on people who are marginalised and disadvantaged in accessing the legal system. It really is the centrepiece of our clinical legal education program at the Law and Justice School. Associate Professor Sean McCarthy is the director of the University of Newcastle's Legal Centre. It's founded on an architecture of social justice and advocacy. And as such, centres like the Justice Clinic are also supported by the Legal Centre, led by Associate Professor and Criminologist Xanthi Mallet, 
and managed by Peter Gogarty, who supervises groups of students who investigate claims of wrongful convictions and miscarriages of justice, as well as cold cases and misclassification of deaths. Whilst the justice system normally gets it right, I guarantee you there are people currently sitting in prison who did not commit the crime for which they have been incarcerated. It's really difficult for these people to get a voice, to be heard. And what I've noticed looking, and I've been working in this space for years now, is that every case that does get a retrial, get an inquiry, is eventually overturned, etc., they all have some sort of white knight on the outside fighting for them. The research that was done by students, particularly around the United Kingdom case, finding out if there had been other situations where there had been children that had died in similar circumstances. It was one of the, the key planks in our application for a judicial inquiry in 2015. It's also part of a learning process for them. They make very considerable contributions and always have. Hi, I'm Shani Wellington. I'm a Wandy Wandy Yarn and Geringer woman and I'm from the University of Newcastle. And this is the minds changing lives. A lot of other lawyers have this story where they always wanted to be a lawyer or they were great at arguing and their family always said they should be a lawyer or something like that. For me, I was definitely an argumentative child and a challenging child, but I didn't really ever want to be a lawyer. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I ended up in law by coincidence. When Kate Willinger's commute to Sydney from Newcastle became a bit too much, she transferred to the University of Newcastle. She changed from economics to communication and landed on law. As part of her required fourth-year practical experience, Kate started work at the legal centre. But she never imagined that it would be Kathleen Folbig's case on her desk. It was quite exciting to me to be able to be involved in something that was so big, but also quite intimidating, I suppose, Mm. because it's hard to believe that someone who isn't yet a lawyer, who's still a student, would have the opportunity to be involved in something like that. You know, this is something that really high-level lawyers barristers would be working on what could I possibly do towards this matter that would be helpful. I can say, though, it certainly made me a lot more interested in what we were actually learning and doing because all of a sudden it had a real-world application, but it had a really significant and life-changing real-world application, life-changing certainly for the client and the family involved but life-changing for us as well in terms of the perspectives that you get of the clients that you're dealing with and the real life that is behind these massive, high-profile sort of cases. So the Legal Centre um, commenced its operations in 1995. So it's been operating nearly 30 years now. And so it's had a tradition of taking on those challenging and difficult cases, maybe cases that no one else might be able to take on. This is Sean McCarthy, director of the University of Newcastle's Legal Centre. And often there are David and Goliath type cases. Mm-hmm. You're taking on cases that may have some controversy about them or may have some um, issues which need to be addressed through some public interest advocacy. It puts the, the study of law that students do in the classroom online into practice. So they're dealing with real-life problems. It's bringing to life the textbook readings 
it's bringing to life the cases. So there's a human being behind these cases. And you can read these high court cases, which are really important in terms of precedent value. But what the legal center does is it actually shows that people have uh, a whole lot of problems. Some of them might be legal. Some of them might be associated with legal problems or non-legal problems. What the legal center does with some amazing dedicated students and staff is being able to support those people at these really difficult times of their lives. So just in our history, we've um, been involved in acting for the widow of Ronnie Levi, who was shot dead by police on Bondi Beach. We acted for the family of Cornelia Rao, who was wrongfully detained in a detention centre in 2004. And most recently, as you mentioned, the case of Kathleen Folbig. And the legal centre has dealt with some pretty high profile cases. Can you tell us a bit about how Kathleen Folbig's case became part of the legal centre's work? The Legal Centre became involved in the Kathleen Folbig case in 2013 and our involvement was as a result of the thesis and book that was published called Murder, Medicine and Motherhood that was authored by uh, an academic, Emma Cunliffe. And so she did work on actually exploring the Kathleen Folbig case and that work involved looking at the trial and whether the trial was fair, looked at whether the case should be revisited. And so when we saw that the the work that had been done by Emma Cunliffe and that it did raise concerns about the the case, the legal centre decided to get involved in to uh, look at lodging a judicial review or, and seeking an inquiry into the convictions. By the time the University of Newcastle's legal centre took on Kathleen's case, Kathleen's sentence had been reduced to 30 years after an appeal, but her conviction remained. You see, an appeal is not a retrial. For an appeal to be successful, the appealant needs to convince the judge that the primary judge made a mistake such that the decision should be set aside or varied. It often means the arguing of legal principles. So legal support is vital. Because if an appeal is unsuccessful, the options become narrow. Court of Criminal Appeal is meant to overcome any miscarriages that occur at trial. After that, there is the High Court, but once that's exhausted, there's what is called the prerogative of mercy, which is the approach that we adopted with Kathleen Folby. And that process was tortured long, painful and unsatisfactory. Robert Kavanagh has been Kathleen's barrister since 2013, the same year the legal centre took on the case. Robert worked in tandem with the legal centre and experts to put forth the argument for Kathleen's case to be reviewed. Robert saw what Sean did when looking at the evidence, that Kathleen's guilt had not been effectively proven beyond a reasonable doubt. In her case, there wasn't any real evidence They had a circumstantial case, they said. The usual position taken is that if a jury's dealing with a circumstantial case, and we've taught at all schools that a circumstantial case can be as strong as any other case. Well, it can be, but that's the exception to the rule, in my view. Um, Circumstantial cases can be very, very strong, very clear, but mostly they're not and this is where people get confused, is people fill in gaps 
in evidence rather than look strictly at the evidence and inferences are drawn, which can be quite fanciful. And there was a lot of fanciful stuff in Kathleen Folbig's case. Hello, my name is Dr Xanthi Mallet and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Newcastle in the School of Law and Justice. Associate Professor Xanthi Mallet leads the Justice Clinic at the University of Newcastle, amongst many other things. It was formerly known as the Bridge of Hope Innocence Initiative, which you might remember from Season 1. It's supported by the Centre for Law and Social Justice and students part of the clinic investigate claims of wrongful conviction and campaign for reform of issues that lead to these injustices. Criminology is the scientific study of the non-legal aspects of crime and delinquency from the viewpoints of anthropology, biology, psychology and psychiatry, economics, sociology and more. It's a whole picture view of the person and the criminal justice system. I came across Kathleen Folbig's case because an individual that was highly influential, Professor Soroy Meadows, an eminent paediatrician, was very impactful on Kath and her case back in those early days when she was first prosecuted in 2003. I'd come across Soroy Meadows as part of my PhD research uh, looking at expert evidence and when it all goes horribly wrong. So when I saw his name associated with this case, which I didn't know anything about, I just got here from the UK, I was like, "Mm, that's a worry because he'd been totally discredited in the UK and yet I was still seeing his little fingers in cases over here and I was like, that's a concern. In the case of Kathleen Folbig, her diary entries, really big main sort of piece of evidence that was used against her. Why... Isn't that the most reliable form of evidence from a criminology point of view? Well, I always kind of liken it to reading tea leaves. You know, when you write something down in a highly emotional state or other state, you know, you've got to remember Kath's diaries when she was writing them, she'd lost one, two, three, and then four children. So this is somebody who, for whatever cause of death may have been, is in a heightened emotional state. Psychologically, this is going to be incredibly traumatic. And so writing your innermost feelings, they're not meant to be cohesive. It's not a narrative. There's no no real thought into how you're expressing it. You're just putting it on paper. And so for somebody else to come along and go, well, I interpret that as you meaning, well, how can they possibly do that? So as I said, you may as well read tea leaves. You look in the bottom of the cup, you shake it around a bit, and then you come up with interpretation. And when you take those little excerpts, and that's all that was presented in court to the jury, the prosecution chose the most suspicious-looking parts. If you took them out of context, that's what the jury saw. Okay, they may have wanted to use the diaries, but fair play, let's use the whole diary. Let's actually see them see the whole thing, not just these little excerpts that you think are the most suspicious. And that, to me, was highly prejudicial and extremely problematic. There are only a few cases worldwide that use diaries and there's a very good reason why they are not used commonly. And at the time that was one of the main pieces of evidence because there was a lot missing in the evidence pile in terms of the case against her. But in recent years there has been some genetic evidence that's come to light. Can you talk to us a bit about what that is and how it came to be. Yeah, well, you're right. There was no evidence. There was no evidence of harm of any of the children. The postmortems all suggested natural causes. Even Laura, the last child, her cause of death would have been natural causes if the pathologist hadn't known about the diaries and the previous death. So he allowed that to influence 
his report that he wrote, which again is a huge red flag. Experts are only meant to look at the evidence in front of them and not bring in extraneous factors. So all of these things were highly problematic. And I wrote that in 2014, there was reasonable doubt. But as you say, the science took a little while to kind of catch up. And more recently, I think it was 2019, a group of independent scientists were looking at the full genetic profile of all four children to see whether there was anything in those profiles which could have indicated they died an early death for genetic reasons because they were all listed as dying of sudden infant death syndrome. And that's just an umbrella category, which Mm. basically says we don't really know why this child died, but we do know that there are environmental and genetic and social factors which affect children and can lead to early death. So they started looking specifically at the DNA. They found in the two girls a genetic mutation which has been shown to lead to early death. So... Kathleen was prosecuted on the pattern of deaths, all four children dying and how extremely unusual this is in one family. It's not, but that was what was printed in court. Mm. And so if you take out the, the two girls and say, well, look, genetically we can prove that there's a reason they died early, you have no pattern anymore. What's interesting is that in the, in the end, genetics came into play in the case particularly of Laura and... Sarah, the last two deaths, and interestingly, students had been working on that in terms of heart arrhythmias and the prospect of there being genetic problems from 2013. So um, the students did a lot of research in looking at any advances in science and medicine since the trial in 2003. So we're a decade later now Mm. in 2013. And the students were looking at, had there been any new evidence or any reports where in a similar set of circumstances, there were new developments in this science and medical field. And subsequently, those convictions were overturned and there were various reasons why that was so. But those cases were important in terms of looking at whether there were any similar cases that had occurred. We knew that there'd been previous cases in the UK that dealt with similar situations to what Kathleen had been in. So I was reading over the research there and essentially reporting back to Sean in terms of what we were finding and whether anything was relevant. I can remember that I was doing a lot of reading to do with the medical research in terms of what was becoming known about SIDS and the genetic type issues that kids in other cases, not Kathleen's, had had. Students were involved from the early stages and there's some, a number of them came up with very interesting propositions. So when you're looking at a case, you need to review all the evidence and that starts with looking at the trial transcript. Court of Appeal, the documents that underlie or form the foundation of the trial, uh, read it and see where there are any flaws. And a number of of points uh, were always raised by students. I was working as a bit of a buffer between Sean, who was doing the solicitor's work, and the actual research that was there to flag anything for him that was going to be relevant that he needed to know about and that council needed to know about. And, and was that contribution, as we know, you know, had an impact in the end? It did. It, 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 I'd have to say it definitely wasn't 
just my contribution, it's the contribution of everyone who's worked on that case. But definitely looking back, the things that we were doing at the time in the legal centre were the same issues that ultimately ended in a successful outcome mm-hmm. for Kathleen Folbig. The same questions as to the medical information that had convicted Kathleen, the same questions as to whether or not that should have been found to be something that we consider beyond reasonable doubt. Looking back, we definitely got to play a part in something that was very important, particularly when you take it back to the justice system and our ideas of what's fair and what's right in our justice system, the way that we want it to work, but also in terms of the life of another human being. In 2015, the collective effort from dozens of people, like forensic pathologists such as Professor Cordner, lawyers and the research done by students, was used in a petition to the governor. The evidence was compelling enough that it cast doubt over the conviction. And in 2018, the then governor of New South Wales, under the recommendation of the Attorney General, launched an inquiry into the convictions of Miss Folbig. At the inquiry, Professor De Fleur and Professor Hilton, alongside geneticists, presented evidence at the hearing. While the report of the inquiry reinforced Miss Folbig's guilt, in 2021, another petition was filed, requesting that the Attorney General exercise the pardon power pursuant to Section 76 of the Crimes Appeal and Review Act 2001. With the new genetic evidence confirming the suspicions raised in the first petition, a second inquiry was announced in 2022. And on June 5th, 2023, Miss Folbig received an unconditional pardon and was released from prison. I think at times it can be incredibly painstaking and it can be slow and the wheels of justice can turn quite slowly. So it is can be frustrating at times because you could be going down this particular research task and then you get to a dead end and there's just nothing further you can go with that. I think that journey for students is really important because when they get to the point where they actually can see that there are aspects that are actually indicating some new evidence or, or new cases, um, they become even more passionate, they become even more committed because they can see that their work's really pivotal. And I suppose that's part of what our our legal centre is, that the students work alongside the lawyers. It's not hierarchical in the sense that while the lawyers have the experience in the, and, the, um, a, and the ability to practice law, the law students are important in terms of their commitment to actually doing all that research. And without the students, we wouldn't be able to do these cases. In my experience, you go through and you learn all of the law or, or um, you learn the cases through your law degree and the academic side of law, but you really don't feel like you would know how to apply that to a real-life situation until you're actually doing it. So I think from the outset, I wasn't sure what I'd be able to do, and it was once I was actually doing it that you start to understand the greater picture. I think the clinic sets students up for a really good transition into legal practice or into other areas of their career because 
they're doing it at the same time as they're doing their studies. So it's not like there's some artificial separation where mm. you do your law studies and then you tack on some practical experience. Actually doing it in an integrated model really is the best way to be able to get students to be able to effectively problem solve. And a lot of work, whether it's practicing law or whether you're working in some other type of career, you're often doing a lot of problem solving. If you have a legal centre, you can take people into real cases and they can learn. And at the same time, you're helping people who otherwise not financially resourced sufficiently to be able to employ others. Kathleen Folby's current solicitor, Rani Rego, she was uh, doing some work as a student at the law school and then she came on placement with me. I think that was in 2017 and we were working on Folby case then and then she got a job with a firm of solicitors went through the inquiry uh, and then ultimately ended up uh, into the second inquiry and then finally representing Kathleen as a a solicitor. If you really want to know about how cases function and to help people, at the same time as learning, it's a great way of doing it. Both the Legal Centre and the Justice Clinic are dedicated to addressing the systemic problems that give rise to injustices similar to those experienced by Kathleen. Wrongful convictions not only devastate the lives of the individuals and their families, but they also erode public trust in the integrity of the criminal justice system. What impact does a wrongful conviction have on a person? Well, you've got to understand the impacts of incarceration and what that does to a person in terms of having their whole life controlled by other people. So literally, their day is outlined from the moment they wake up to the amount of freedom they have, how much time they spend in isolation, what they eat, when they eat, when they shower. They're being watched the whole time. And I think that institutionalization that people talk about is real. And I've seen a number of people who have been released. It makes you incredibly self-protective and quite isolated because it's very difficult to trust other people in that environment because it's really about, you know, survival and looking after yourself. So it makes you kind of turn inward in that context. And the biggest problem comes when people are then released because Mm. we're talking 20 years later the world has changed. Yeah. Language has changed. I mean, look at how things have changed since COVID and all of that language that kind of came in social distancing. And it was a huge shift, right, for everybody. Imagine 20 years of change coming out and trying to understand the new world, understand mobile phones and the internet and all these things that are new to you but are so embedded in the social consciousness, it's totally normal. And she's trying to deinstitutionalize and kind of move back into her freedom and, you know, she's got her driving licence again and that was a huge oh, deal. Amazing. Yeah, because it was almost 20 years, I think it was 20 years to the month she lost it, it you know, it ran out, she got her driving licence. Now imagine that freedom after being incarcerated for 20 years and what that would mean to you, but almost how scary that would be to make those decisions for yourself and start taking ownership and that's going to take a long time. So this is going to be a very long road for Kath and her supporters. While this is completely unimaginable circumstances, Kathleen Folbig isn't alone in being a person who's gone through the justice system and being a victim of a system that isn't perfect. Can you tell us about 
the call for Australia to establish an independent body of reviewing miscarriages of justice and and what impact do you think that that could have? Yeah, what we're talking about here is an independent criminal case review commission and the independent part has to be, that's not part of its name, it's just a criminal case review commission, but they have these in the UK, they have them in Canada, they have them in New Zealand and basically they are, the independent element is they're independent of the judiciary, the police. So this is somewhere where people can submit their cases and they will basically triage them and see whether there's any merit in having them reviewed. So they have to be totally independent because mm-hmm. Cass' release was ultimately, you know, the Attorney General had a lot to do with that and he is a politician. And so from my perspective, these decisions should not be political. They should be based on facts and evidence and reliability of the case and it should stand alone. And so I'm hoping that if we had an independent body such as this of experts who can it would, in my mind, have two roles. It would help people do the applications correctly because a lot of the applications that people are making for reviews, they don't know what to put in and they can Mm. be a bit rambly. But if you could have a really tight system of actually helping them get them right, you know, you've got a better chance of reviewing them correctly and then actually triaging them and saying which ones look to be the most significant in terms of potential wrongful convictions and actually put those forward. But it has to be independent. Otherwise, politics and, and... Cases of wrongful conviction should not mix. So having a legal centre where people can get advice, get some assistance, and to have 150 law students that can be involved in supporting people throughout the year means that we can be able to very much engage with the community and give back to the community. So it really is a pivotal part, certainly in the hunter, of supporting people who are disadvantaged to be able to get and be empowered to be able to know what to do about their legal matter. A lot of legal matters might require just some advice. Mm. And sometimes uh, free legal service providers are very busy in some casework. The fact that the legal centre is there actually means that you can see um, someone and get some advice on the spot with the support of students and the advice which is given by lawyers. So it really fits a, a, a space in the community together with, of course, the clinical legal education, which means our students are so much better prepared in terms of being able to practice the law than at other universities because of that face-to-face and that um, real-life experience with clients, real problems and being able to support them. What kind of feedback do you get from students who have come through the centre and have seen all of the different workings of that place? When the pardon was announced for Kathleen Folbig, I got many emails from students who had been involved in the case, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, they said things like, um, thank you for helping us to challenge assumptions and presumptions and to dig further to understand the set of facts we have before us. My time at the legal centre and working on the original submission for judicial review was an amazing training ground. I really appreciate the public interest law background the university gave me. You know, all the students who've been studying with me have been studying basically criminology law or psychology for three, four or five years, depending on where they are in their degree. And they've got all the theory and they kind of, they know about the cases and then they come in and it's suddenly real Mm -hmm. and it completely shifts their thinking. And you kind of see them going from, you know, being kind of young and green to really understanding the importance of why these people matter. They're not cases anymore. You know, they're talking to people who are incarcerated and it, and it can be quite scary for them because they know that the work they're doing 
could help to make or break with that person may be released at some point. And obviously, it's not about them as individuals. It's very much a team game, but they feel the weight and the relevance. And they're going to go out and they're going to be police or they're going to work in corrections or policy with government or as lawyers or psychologists or whatever. And I think that that passion and understanding for social justice is what Newcastle gives them criminology and the legal clinic. I think that's what we're really strong on and think we're sending out all these little minds into the world that have that as their basis and they'll change it incrementally in little steps. And that's really, I find that amazing and feel really passionate about helping them to make those changes. And I can't wait to see where they all go and, and what they do and seeing the criminal justice system improve. It definitely made me remember to keep a mind to people's real life context in terms of how you're communicating with them, but also in terms of making sure as someone whose first duty is to the court and administration of justice, just to keep working as hard as I can to keep the system working. And Sean, it is quite a unique situation to have a group of passionate young people that are now dedicated to looking into what could have been seen as a cold case or something that was put to bed at the time and suddenly new life has been breathed into that case. To see that unfold, what was that like for you? Uh, Incredibly rewarding as a, a teacher and supervisor to see students so passionate to right wrongs, to be able to uh, advocate for people who are disadvantaged and particularly in a case like Ms. Folbig's. So to see the students' commitment, their wish to so thoroughly research any other p- cases of a similar nature, incredibly rewarding as, a, as an educator. I think really a, a clear example of why our law and justice school really is a leader in clinical ed- legal education in Australia. To see the confidence develop and sometimes students can be quite nervous or apprehensive at the start and to see that develop um, the clinic really um, is a is a forum where you see students I think see how their studies can have an impact on people and as you said before the the importance of social justice many of these cases are, um, are important because of the legal center's commitment to social justice. Um, the importance of supporting people who are disadvantaged in accessing the legal system. And I think students then see the challenges that people can have in in accessing the system. Just lastly, what is the Legal Centre working on at the moment? Can you shed any light? Um, Because we've been involved in a lot of these public interest matters over the years, we get lots of um, people write to us um, asking us to review cases. That might be family members uh, who are wanting a review of a cold case involving a, a family member. It might be a prisoner who's wanting their case reviewed. Currently, we're doing quite a lot of work in reviewing a number of these cases. Um, We're not at the point yet where we can sort of talk about those, but our Justice Clinic, which is part of the Law and Justice School, which is involved with criminology academics, they are very much linked to the Legal Centre and we're reviewing a number of cases where there appears to be a need for public interest advocacy. People are at the centre of our legal system. Our legal system functions for the community and to work for the community. But it doesn't exist in a bubble. The people that are interacting with it are human, with their own real-life context, their own families, their own personal backgrounds. 
And no matter whether you're looking at something like a criminal conviction, you're looking at the way your marriage separation works out, or you're looking at murder charges, it has massive implications for the rest of your life. And ultimately, that everything we do as lawyers can impact the rest of people's lives. Um, And that's something we need to keep in mind in the work that we do. Kathleen still has a long road ahead of her. At the time of recording, her convictions remain intact and the awaited inquiry report has not yet been released. Following the report's findings, Ms Folbig will have to return to the Court of Criminal Appeal to have those cases reviewed. Assuming the convictions are quashed, Ms Folbig will finally hear the words her and her supporters have yearned for for over 20 years. Not guilty. The University of Newcastle's legal centre dared to go where no other would. Guided by the foundational principles ingrained within the centre's framework, a commitment to social justice and a dedication to clinical education. Principles now instilled in the next generation of legal professionals set to shape the way justice is served in this country. For students able to be part of history-making cases like Miss Folbig's, the experience is priceless for their professional development. Able to put their theoretical learning into practice and in most cases, making a real difference in the lives of their clients when they otherwise would not have had the chance. This commitment could potentially spare individuals from enduring the same injustices that Miss Folbig faced and help restore faith in our criminal justice system. This podcast is a listener production brought to you in partnership with the University of Newcastle, hosted by me, Shani Wellington. Produced by Kelsey Menzies, executive producer is Todd Stevens, with audio production by Kelly Fulston. Listener.